There we go. Well, this morning we're going to go ahead and continue on in the book of James. This will be the, the last uh, message on the book of James. So we're going to finish up chapter 4, and then we will finish through chapter 5 as well. And as you recall, as we've been going through the, the book of James, we've been getting a lot of great... This has been a different book than the rest of them we've done, have you noticed? The rest of them seem to be pretty themed. They have a, a, a single theme going forward, and James is just like laying it down. He's shotgunning it out. This is all these different things. These are, that's why they call it the book of uh, the, the Proverbs of the New Testament, because it's a lot of great information for us to live as better Christians, live our lives as better Christians. So if you recall, last week we learned about the importance of our tongue and how powerful it really is. Has anybody been paying a little bit more attention to the words that they've been saying as they've been going forward? Our, our tongue, you know, this would have been a great message from my mom to be here last week. She's the one that's got horses. She gets the, the bridles and the steering the horses and all those things. Actually, probably good she wasn't. She had probably corrected me. I know I said something wrong. <laughs> we also looked at the difference between godly and, and, wor- and earthly wisdom or worthy wisdom last week. And we also learned about the conflict that arises when we try to be a friend to this world. Because when you're trying to be a friend to this world, you're actually being an enemy of God of your own choice. Amen? So now we're going to dig into, like I said, chapter 4 and 5. And the first thing that James is going to be dealing with in this one is those who are rich in this world, but that have their eyes on themselves. I know that being rich isn't necessarily a problem. Having blessing, having money is not a problem. It's where your eyes are focused. If your eyes are focused on yourself and everything that you do with that money is focused inwards, then we have a problem. But when your eyes are towards the heaven, then God can use that stuff to accomplish great things in the kingdom of God. Next, he's going to address those who are being mistreated and persecuted. Actually, in this particular chapter, uh, chapter 5, he's going to talk about those people being persecuted by those same rich people he's going to issue a warning to. And uh, he's going to give instruction on how they're supposed to live even when they're being persecuted. And then finally, he starts to begin speaking on the power of prayer that is offered in faith and what that can accomplish in a believer's life. So let's go ahead and get started this morning. In James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, it says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do it and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So now James is beginning this with dealing with people that are basically making plans for their entire life, but they never take one glance at God. They're trying to, they think they got it figured out. They think that, you know, perhaps they're wealthy, perhaps they have an incredibly successful business. And they figure that, you know what? I don't need God. I mean, look at my life so far. It's going pretty good. What do I need God for? I've been getting along pretty good without Him. So that's who He's, he's dealing with, is people that are, that are rich. They're going through their life making all of their plans without God. Their, their eyes aren't towards heaven at all. And we read this stuff, and, and I think we read it. I mean, man, I can't believe those guys are doing that. I can't believe these people are acting like that. All the while, we forget that so many times in our lives, we act the exact same way. I mean, if you think about it, I bet you can conjure up quite a few memories of when you've tried to make it through life without even asking God about anything. You haven't prayed at all about anything. You just keep moving forward, plowing forward. Actually, the American dream is kind of looks just like that. The American dream is basically this. We want to grow up, go to a good school, get a good job, buy a house, get married, have kids, etc., etc., We've written this plan for our life just by living in America, the American dream that has nothing to do with God. You know, when we, when we write the plan of our life without ever talking to God, you might run into some bumps along the way. Because what if you've been living your life this whole time without talking to God and then finally you decide, you know what, I'm going to see what God has to say. And he says, you know what, I want you to be a missionary in Africa. And you go, but wait a minute, I have a house and kids and debt. And you can't do what God called you to do because you never talked to him about it in the first place. What if he wants to send you to another, to another city to start a ministry or to pastor or to be a teacher or to do any of those things? 
But you're so upside down in your house that there's no possible way you could leave. Our plans have inhibited what God wants to do in our life. Because the problem with that kind of thinking is that we're only thinking about ourselves. What's going to be good for us? What's going to be good for our kids? And it's all inward focused. But the truth is that when we plan our life without looking to God, when we don't invite God's input, all we're doing is spinning our wheels. No matter how successful we are according to this world, we're just spinning our wheels. In Psalms 127, 1-2, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he, who gives to his, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The Bible says that if we're doing these things without God, that we're just doing it in vain. It's not going to accomplish anything for the purposes of the kingdom of heaven. And I know that I don't want to live my life and stand in front of Jesus someday and he goes, I had so much for you to do, but you did whatever you wanted to do. Because that means that there's going to be people that aren't reached. There's going to be people that will never hear the gospel because we figured our plans were more important than God's. There's going to be people that could have been in heaven, but they're not because we made a different choice. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with having nice things. Obviously, we have a nice house, we have cars, we're well taken care of. We are, we are blessed people, as are most of you in this room. Matter of fact, as are all of you in this room. The poorest people in the United States are richer than like something like 80% of the rest of the world. When we think we have it bad, you know, I've taken a trip to Africa. I've been through the villages. I've preached to those people, and we have it great, even the worst of us here. But there is nothing wrong with those things. I believe that God wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be successful. The problem is not the things. It's where our eyes are focused. It's our heart attitude when we never even talked to him about it. And that's one thing, when we were looking for a house, Michelle and I, we prayed, what would the house that God would have for us? And he told us that this is the house that he wanted. And we, we went with this house. We figured we were going to use it for ministry. This was before he told us we were having a house church, so he tricked me. But uh, he said this was the house for us, and now I know why. God had plans for this house. How many know that if I went, you know what, I don't want to live this far out in Miranda. I wish I was closer to town then I could have hampered God's ability to work in my life. We probably wouldn't all be here today. And the same thing goes for all of us. We need to listen to what God has for our lives. You know, when you received salvation, it was more than just a one-way transaction. It's true, it's a free gift, but you also declared that He was the Lord of your life. He gave you His life, you gave Him yours. And that means that we need to include him in what we do in our lives because our life was bought with a price. You know, the Bible also tells us to number our days. Because we live such a short time. In the grand scheme of things, this short little time that we have on our earth, you know, the average 80 years of the person, is nothing compared to eternity. So we need to make the best of it because this is the only time that people can receive the free gift of salvation. This is the short time that they get to make a choice and we need to make sure that we're sharing that and giving everybody we can the opportunity to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to ensure that we're living in the will of God to do those things. In Luke 12, 16-21 it says, And he told them a parable, this is Jesus speaking, it says, And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this, I will tear down, <clears throat> I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You know, when we live our lives only focusing on ourselves, we're building up treasure that's not going to last. We're building up stuff that we can't take with us, and it could be much better suited serving the kingdom of God. You know, when we live our lives like this, we're actually living in arrogance. He says that we're boasting here. It says that uh, 
that when we live like this, it says we are boasting in our arrogance, and all such boasting is, is evil. And what he's trying to say by that is when we live like this, we're basically saying, you know what, God, I can do it on my own. I don't need you. I don't need your help. I don't need your wisdom. I don't need your guidance because when I look at my life. It's pretty good so far. And we're boasting in our own abilities. And the Bible says that kind of arrogance is evil. Living like that is evil. In 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31, it says, Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, if you want to boast, boast in what Christ has accomplished in you. Boast in the fact that you were once lost, but now that you're found. Boast in the fact that in Him, you are strong. In Him, you are victorious. But don't boast in what you can accomplish. You know, we don't know what the the future holds for us or what tomorrow will bring. And to boast in our control over something we don't have control over is is a little bit ridiculous if you think about it. That's what he's talking about here. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? When we make these grand plans, like we've got everything planned out, we're not doing it with all the information. And we're making, in truth, we're probably making poor decisions. And it's not a, once again, this isn't about not planning. This isn't about not making wise choices. The problem is, is where is our heart at? What, who are we looking to? And then in verse 17, he says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James is speaking to, to Jewish Christians that fled Jerusalem. And these people should have known better than to live their lives like this. These are people that should have known better. They know the right thing to do, but they decided to, to run away and go out on their own with an attitude of self-sufficiency. And it doesn't matter how smart you are, how talented you are, how gifted you are, you still need God in your life. So we find that not only doing things that are sinful wrong, but when we go out on our own, when we when we don't do the things that we're supposed to, like these people were doing, they figured they were gifted, talented, they had it made, they knew what they were supposed to do, but they weren't doing it, not doing what you're supposed to do is sin as well. You know, this is why mature Christians are held to a higher standard than young baby Christians. You know, I think God lets young Christians get away with a lot of stuff because they're still learning, they're figuring out. But you know what? If you've been a Christian for a while, you shouldn't be doing the same. It's time to grow up and do the things we're supposed to be doing. Amen? So if we continue on to James chapter 5, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. For you have laid up treasure in the last days. So now, James is still referring to those rich people that have it all figured out. And like I said, the, the problem is not their money but their attitude. In Matthew 6, 19-21, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Their heart was in their treasure here on earth. Their eyes were firmly planted inward, and what's in it for me? The only focus they had was getting richer. But the Bible makes it clear that, that the gold and silver, all this stuff that they're, that they're gathering up, the Bible says your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten and your gold and silver have corroded. You know, the stuff that we store up on earth is not going to benefit us in eternity. It's, it's, it's going to corrode. It's going to be destroyed. Have you ever seen when they find treasure that's been stuck in the bottom of the ocean or they're digging it out? How many of you know that unless you know what you're looking for, it doesn't really look that good? It, it doesn't have the luster that it once had. It doesn't look, it doesn't have the, 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 the looks that it once had. It's not the same. It corrodes. It gets destroyed. It doesn't last. The Bible says, store up for yourself treasure that will last. Treasure in heaven. You know what's going to last? When you introduce people to Jesus and you get to see Him in heaven one day. That's lasting treasure. 
Then he goes on to say that this very stuff that is corroded, it says that corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Do you know that misused riches can corrupt a person's character? You know, it's funny, sometimes people pray to God, they're asking, Lord, you know, you know, send me money, send me these things. They're praying to get rich. And God, being a wise father, is like, there's no way I'm doing that. You're not ready to handle that kind of finances. Do you know what would happen to you if you won the lottery? All the stuff that you'd be gathering, it would be evidence against you. It would begin to eat your flesh. It would begin to corrode your character. You see, the problem is, is that it's the idea of two masters. We need to, to be clear in who our, who our master is before God can bless us with those kind of things. In Luke 16, 13, it says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I mean, you know that money is not the only word that you can put there. You cannot serve God and anything else. You have to make a choice. Now, obviously, James is dealing with rich people here. Their money is, is their problem. But we need to make sure we're putting God first in everything that we do. Because the truth is, no matter how you look at it, we are laying up for ourselves treasure in the last days. See, when I read this the first time, it says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. I think he's being a little sarcastic. <laughs> the treasure you've laid up is not the treasure that you want to have. But either way, we're laying up treasure in heaven. Or rather, we're laying treasure up somewhere, either heaven or elsewhere. And we are going to receive our just reward. And in Jesus, that reward is eternal life. But if we store up that treasure in any other way, it's eternal death and separation from God. That's why... That's why Jesus said it would be difficult, if not impossible, for the rich man to enter into heaven. In Matthew 19, 23-24, it says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it's so easy for us to get hung up on money when we read these things. And we're like, I'm poor, I'm good to go. But... So many people put other things in front of God. It's not just money that he's talking about. If you put anything in front of God, you're going to have problems. And then again, it's not a sin to be rich. How many know that Abraham was an incredibly wealthy dude? David was a king. He had some money. It's not, wealth is not the problem. It's what we do with that wealth. Amen? James 5, 4 through 6 says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields. And remember, he's still talking about those rich people that are just getting rich. And it says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. These are the people that are storing up treasure on that last day, but it's not treasure in heaven. So not only were these guys rich, with their hearts focused firmly on themselves and not on God, but they're, they're mistreating others to get what they want. They're rich because they're holding back the wages of the laborers who are actually working for them. The ones that were mowing their fields, they're keeping back by fraud. They're basically stealing from their workers so that they could be a little bit richer, a little more money in their pocket. They were so only interested in what they had that they're committing fraud, they're stealing. And you know what? They probably thought they were getting away with it. Because we find out here in verse 6, it says that he does not resist you. These, these righteous people that he's stealing from, they're stealing from, they don't resist. Probably they're a little bit afraid. What's going to happen if they stand up to, to these people? I don't know why they weren't resisting. But they weren't. So these guys were thinking, you know what, I'm getting away with this. I'm going to keep doing it because who can stop me? Obviously the people I'm doing it to can't. But I want you to know that when people live their, live their lives like this, they're not getting away from it. They're not getting away with it. In Romans 2, 5-8, through 8, 
It says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be re revealed. He will, render to, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. You know, when people live without God and they do these terrible things, especially when they're hurting other people, they're storing up for themselves wrath in heaven. They're not getting away with it, even though they think they might. They figure they have it, they have it good here. You see, they've lived in luxury and on this earth. They've, they've lived in self-indulgence. But they've received the reward, and it's passing, and it's temporary. In Hebrews 11, 24-26, they refer to sin as a passing pleasure. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, that's the problem with people that are, that are inward-focused. They're just looking at the short-term reward in their life, and they're, they've completely disregarded the inheritance that they would have when they received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But you guys remember the story of Lazarus and the, and the rich man? You know, one day they're going to know their, their folly. In Luke 16, 19-25, it says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even as the dogs came and licked his sores, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, began being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. You know, not, people that are living like this are not getting away with anything. Unless they repent, this is the, how their story ends up. And I believe that's why God's given instruction to the rich man in the Bible. The problem with, with money is it so can easily corrupt your view. It, it makes you feel self-sufficient. It makes you feel all these things. And in and, and 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, Paul told Timothy to give special instructions to those who are rich. In 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of which is truly life. You see, the truth is that you can be rich and still store up treasures in heavens, but it's all about where your focus is and really what you're doing with that wealth. You know, you've heard it said that, that money is just a tool. In that case, it's just like everything else. A brick can be used to build a house or bash somebody over the head. It's what you use those tools for. So the rich man can do the right thing. In James 5, 7 through 8, it says, Be patient, therefore, brothers. Now James is speaking to those men who were, who were being persecuted, who were being stolen from by those rich men. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. These are the ones that are, that are suffering. These are the saints who are being mistreated. But James urges them to be patient. It's essentially the same advice that he gave in the beginning of the book of James. In James chapter 1, 2 through 5, you remember he said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, it's the very same, the same advice. Be patient. Be steadfast. And he gives... This example here is the farmer. He says, 
he basically compares Christians to, to act. He wants them to act in the same way a farmer would act when it plant, he plants his crops. The farmer has to be patient to yield crops. It's not like the story of Jack and the Beanstalk. There's no farmer in this country that throws his seed in the ground. It's like, whoa, there it is. You have to wait. You have to be patient. It has to, to grow and cultivate in the ground. And it needs rain to nourish it so that it can grow and produce fruit that the, that the farmer can, can uh, yield in his crops. But you know what? The farmer doesn't have any control over the weather. The farmer doesn't have any control over what's going on. He has some control. He can plant it. He can be patient. That's basically what he can do. He can, he can do his work and he can be patient. But life goes on around him. The world goes on around him and he has to wait. He has to depend on the weather. And back then, when, the, when this, this is being used, they didn't have the irrigation techniques that we had. They didn't have ways to get around this stuff. If it didn't rain, then you didn't eat. That's why we see all the stories of, of droughts in the Bible. And they, they talk about they have a drought and famine because it didn't rain, so they didn't eat. So they had to be patient for the weather to come. They had to endure all kinds of things as this happened. And that's what, that's what James is saying that he wants Christians to be like. You know, you need to keep on moving forward, keep on doing the work, keep on planting your seed, but be patient. You know, there's many things that we face in this life that, there's, that we can't do anything about. We face many things just because we're living on this earth. But the truth is that as long as our heart attitude is correct, as long as we don't let those things uh, change our attitude, even though we may be poor in this world, the truth is that I guarantee you, you'll be rich in the next. James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has he not chosen those who are poor in the world to become rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? It's with faith and patience that we inherit the promises of God. We might suffer. We might be mistreated. We might go through hard times. But with patience and faith, we can make it through to the other side. Hebrews 6, 11 through 12 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I like what it says in verse 11 there. It says, we want to show you the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. We can have full assurance. Hebrews 6.11 through 12. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I like how we can have a full assurance of hope. Even if nothing ever changes in this life, which I don't believe is true. I believe that if you trust God and have faith in Him, God will bless you and turn things around. You might go through a period of, of, of struggling, but we count it all joy because it produces in us faithfulness. It produces in us steadfastness. And I don't believe that God wants to leave you in those situations. God wants to bless you. Just like with your kids, you want the best for them, God wants the best for you. But even if nothing ever changed, we will still receive our reward if we remain faithful. Just like Lazarus in the story that we just read earlier, just like that he, he, everything went wrong for him in his short span of life on the earth. But how many know that that short span of life is nothing compared to the reward you receive for eternity? Amen? And then in James 5, 9 through 11, he says, Do not grumble against one another. This is, he's still speaking to those saints that are being mistreated and persecuted. He said, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. See, this is an interesting comment coming from James, because he's saying, don't grumble to one another. And he's talking to the ones who are being oppressed. Basically, he's saying, don't grumble at those people that are oppressing you, the ones that are stealing from you. Don't grumble. And you're like, but God... Don't I have a right to grumble? I mean, they're treating me poorly. Don't I have a right? You see, to grumble is to complain or protest about something in a bad-tempered, but typically muted way. 
you know, even when we're going through rough times, we're not supposed to be bad-tempered. We're not supposed to get angry. I just realized I just said supposed. The word is supposed. This is, this is what happens when you... You're not supposed. <laughs> is that right? That doesn't sound right now either. Supposed? Supposed. All right. But you're not supposed to act like that. <laughs> Especially, we're not supposed to be bad-tempered about those who are giving us cause to be patient. The, those very ones who are mistreating us, those very ones that James is saying, hey, be patient when these things are happening. He says, but don't grumble against them. Don't become bad-tempered. Basically, he's saying, don't become hypocritical. Don't angrily complain that someone is acting sinful when the very act of complaining is sinful in and of itself. But he says, instead, take the prophets as an example. Because you know, if you've read the Old Testament, and really even for the apostles as well, that these men and women of God, they were treated pretty poorly time and time again. But he says, take them as an example. Because Satan wants you to think that if you're going through a tough, a tough time, if you're being persecuted, if things are hard, it must be because you've done something wrong in your life. It must be because of some sort of sin. That's what the devil is going to tell you. It's all your fault. But I want you to know that if you read through the Bible, you'll find out that sometimes you go through these things because you're being faithful, because you're being a man or woman of God. The truth is that you're never going to be punished for sin in your life because Jesus paid that price. If God was going to continue to punish you for your failures then you're basically saying that Jesus wasn't enough. And I want you to know that if Jesus wasn't enough, we can all just go home. There's no point for any of this. And I'm not saying that there's not consequences for sin. You guys understand the differences between punishment and consequences? If somebody murders somebody, the consequence is that they're probably going to go to prison, even though they can be completely redeemed and for forgiven in Christ. There was a consequence but the punishment, the eternal punishment, was paid by Jesus. If that, if that murderer receives Jesus Christ, he still receives the eternal reward, even though he did pay a consequence. That's the difference. But like I said, there's many times that we're going to suffer just because of our faithfulness. In 2 Timothy 3.12 it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you've received Jesus, you will be persecuted. Not might, not could be, but you will be persecuted if you've received Jesus. If you haven't been persecuted, you might want to take a look at your life. Nobody may know that you've received Jesus. There may be no evidence for it. You know, Elijah was persecuted and suffered pretty bad. One, you remember the story that Elijah, he prayed that there would no be, be no rain for, for what was it, three years, three and a half years. No rain, he prayed for, and there was no rain. Now, we look at that and we're like, and we're going to read about his story shortly, but you look at that and you're like, man, that's a pretty powerful prayer. I mean, that, it was a man of God. He knocked it out of the park with that one. How many know that he went through the three years and six months with no rain? Life wasn't good for Elijah during that time. He suffered through that time. Thank God God took care of him and made sure that he was brought food and water. But even in that, he suffered because the crows brought him food. And that was a big no-no for Jews. You don't touch food from, from those kind of things. That was sinful. But then he, he prophesied again. He prayed again and it started raining again. And then what happens right after that? Ahab's wife, King, old King Ahab, his wife Jezebel, tries to kill him. He, he went through some rough times. What about David? You remember David when he was being hunted by Saul? God, God said, anointed him and said that you were the next king of Israel. And then for the next however many years, the current king tried to kill him. That's some, that's some tough life right there. What about Joseph? Joseph suffered slavery and imprisonment, and God used him great. It wasn't anything that he did. And what about Paul and, and the disciples that suffered? 
the apostles that suffered. Matter of fact, almost all the apostles were killed at the hands of persecutors. They were martyred. I don't think any of us would argue that, yeah, they must have had some sin in their life. That's why it happened. They suffered because of their faithfulness. However, James says that we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Nobody would argue that Paul wasn't blessed, that David wasn't blessed, that Joseph wasn't blessed. They remained steadfast. Then you look at the case of Job. He says, you have heard the steadfastness of Job. He got it pretty rough there for a while. Basically, his entire family was killed off. He lost everything. But he remained steadfast. You know what? He, he cursed the day he was born, but he never cursed God. And God blessed him double what he had. He had more family. He had more. And it doesn't mean that there wasn't pain. There wasn't suffering. How many know that even when he was doubly blessed at the end, he, he still missed his family. They were still suffering. But God took care of them. You see, we serve a compassionate and merciful God who will ensure that you receive your just reward if we just remain steadfast, if we remain patient, if we press on. Amen? And then in James 5.12, he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. As Christians, our word should be as good as gold. I mean, when you, they, they should make it, the truth is it should be that when you go to court and you give your testimony, if, you, if you're a Christian, there should be no doubt. They don't even need a jury. It's just, it is what it is. It's truth. But the fact is, it's not really like that. That's the way it should be for Christians. And in this case, James is talking to, to a, a group of Jews, and, and in these days, it was, it was a habit for the Jews to, to swear oaths. They would swear by heaven. They'd swear by earth. They would swear by the throne of God. They would swear by all of these things. Now, they were very careful not to swear by God because, you know, that was blasphemy. But they would swear by all these other things, lesser things. And not only does James have a problem with this, not only does James say, hey, don't swear by, by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but how many know Jesus had a problem with this too? In Matthew 5, 33-37, it says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply yes or no. Nothing more than this. Anything more than this comes from, e from evil. The point that Jesus was trying to make, that when you swear by these things, that you swear by heaven, you swear by earth, you swear by Jerusalem, is you can't separate that from God. He says that, that uh, heaven is the throne of God and the earth is the footstool of God and Jerusalem is the city of God. You can't separate God from these things. So when you're swearing by these things, you're essentially, essentially still swearing by the name of God. And see, the, the problem was when you made those kind of oaths, if you, if you made an oath by God and you didn't keep it, you were in direct violation of one of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 27, it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. When they made these oaths and they didn't keep them, they were taking the Lord's name in vain. And this is, this is a big deal. Now, today, as Christians, we need to have the same, the same attitude that, James that Jesus instructed the Jews, that James is instructing these Christian Jews, that thank God that if we, if we make a mistake, if we do something stupid, that we have an advocate to the Father and Jesus Christ. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't live the way we're supposed to live. And then Jesus went on to say that why would you even swear by your head because you can't make one hair of it white or black. Basically he was saying that don't swear by these things because you can't separate it from God and don't swear by anything else because swearing by anything else is worthless. You swear by your head, you swear by any other thing. What does that mean? You can't even, it, it's not worth anything. You can't even make your, your hair white or black. I mean, swearing by your head is, just say it, it's pointless. There's nothing, it's a worthless oath when you swear by those things. So if you shouldn't swear by God, 
and you shouldn't swear by other things because they're worthless, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. As Christians, we need to have character. We need to have integrity. And our no and our yes should be enough. Whenever you tell somebody that you're going to do something, do it. Just saying that we're a Christian should inspire trust in people. And I realize that's not how it is, but that's how it should be. And the truth is that that's never going to change as Christians. We don't start living like this. If we don't start letting our yes be yes and our no be no, then, then the perception in people's eyes is never going to change. But you're like, well, what, what can I do? What can one person do? You can make a start. You can start making the difference. So let's, let's be people that, that do what we say we're going to do. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. Amen? Then in James 5, 13 through 16, James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So here's some more great practical advice from James. Is anybody suffering? Then pray. If you're suffering, pray. Talk to God about it. In 1 John 5, 14 through 15, it says, And this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will and He hears us, and if we know that He hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. God hears your voice. He is not so far away that He can't hear you. And you are not in so invaluable that He won't listen to you. He wants to hear you. He wants you to talk to Him. And we can have confidence that He does hear us and that He, he will do what we ask as long as it's according to His will. Well, how do I know if it's according to His will? If it's according to the Bible, if it's in line with the Word of God, it's according to His will. How do I know if God wants me healed? Well, the Bible says it's, that by His stripes you are healed. It's according to the will of God. Philippians 4.6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't be afraid to talk to God because He wants to hear your voice. And then He says, Is anyone cheerful? Sing praises. You know what? Don't be afraid to give praise and glory to God, to tell Him thank you. See, the problem that we, we tend to run into is when everything's going good, God just kind of falls off the radar. Truthfully, when people are suffering and having a hard time, usually don't have a real hard time crying out to God. But when things are going well, that's when, that's when uh, we kind of start just forgetting about God because oh, it's all going well. What do I need to ask God for anything for? Well, sing praises. Tell Him thank you. Give Him glory. And then He says, is anyone sick? Basically, get prayed for. Talk to the elders. Have them lay hands on you. I think too many times we feel like we're inconveniencing God or we're inconveniencing the other members of the church if we ask to get prayed for because we've got a headache. We're like, well, a headache's not really that bad, so I don't want to bother anybody. God's probably too busy. The Bible says if you're sick, call on the elders of the church and get prayed for. Get hands laid for you. It's not just for life-threatening diseases. When we pray in faith, God honors our prayers. And healing is already yours. It was purchased by the blood of the Lamb. By His stripes, we are healed. If you're not feeling well, call somebody from the church and say, would you pray for me? Meet with somebody. Would you lay hands on me? The Bible instructs us to do those things. And I think we're doing God a disservice when we decide that what we have isn't worthy of His time because that's not our choice. And then he says, confess your sins to one another. Anybody ever been scared by that little verse right there? Confess your sins to one another. First off, I want you to know it has nothing to do with airing your dirty laundry in front of the church. What he's talking about is your sins that you've committed to one another. If you wrong somebody, go talk to them about it. If you've done something wrong, that's what he's talking about. Confess your sins to one another and pray to one another. 
that you would be healed. The, the thing that he wants us to do here is interact with one another. If you've hurt somebody, if you've done something against somebody, then deal with it. Don't just let it fester. In Matthew 18, 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's what it's talking about here. And then he says, pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another and then pray for one another that you might be healed. We need to be able to go to one another if we're sick and have people lay hands on us. This, is, this should be fundamental. It shouldn't even be a question. The first thing that we do when someone says, oh, I'm not feeling well, is lay hands on them or ask to have hands laid on them. The Bible says that if we'll do that for one another, that we would be healed. And you know what? If you're sick, you don't need the pastor to lay hands on you. It doesn't have to be me. It can be anybody in the church. Lay hands on one another. Fathers, lay hands on your kids and lay hands on your wives. Mothers, lay hands on your kids and lay hands on your wives. Those, sorry, your husbands. <laughs> but we need to make sure we're doing those things. Because that's what is being a, a Christian is all about, is, is caring for and loving the people around you. And you have authority. The same Holy Spirit that works in me is the same Holy Spirit that works in you. I, there's nothing about me that makes my prayer more effective than yours. A prayer in faith is powerful. It's the faith that's the issue, not the person. Never underestimate the power of your prayer that is offered in faith. Jesus said that you could command, command mountains to move. If you can command a mountain to move, sickness doesn't stand a chance to the one who prays in faith. In James 5, 17 through 18, we're going to talk about Elijah. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and, and the earth bore its fruit. How, how often do you read the Bible and you see people in the Bible and you're like, man, I wish I could be like them. I mean, look at the faith they had. Look at the, They must have been born with something special. And me, I'm just a regular old guy. But the Bible says that these men, these guys, they prayed for, for no rain for three years and six months it didn't rain. That's, that's a powerful prayer of faith right there. But the Bible says that he had a nature just like ours. He was just like you and me. He was no different than you and me. He even made mistakes like us. Just You remember the, I told you that he ran from Jezebel? Think about this. Right before this, he destroyed a bunch of soldiers with fire. And then he destroyed all the, he, he dealt with the, uh, the, uh, all the, the, the prophets of Baal. And calls fire down from heaven. It burns up all the water. And then, he calls rain back. So this, I mean, I think that I would be walking on cloud nine if all these things had just happened for me. And then one woman gets angry at him, and he runs for the hills. Where does faith go there? He's just like us. He has ups and downs. There was nothing special about Elijah in the sense that he was born with some special power that allowed him to have more faith than you or I. He accomplished incredible things for the kingdom of God, but he was no different than you or I. The same... Uh, God that was working through him is the same God that works through us. You know the, the same Holy Spirit that worked in Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that's working in you? The same Holy Spirit that allowed Jesus to, to perform the miracles that he did, healings and raising people from the dead, is the same Holy Spirit that is at work in you. That means that if you pray in faith, you have the, the same opportunity to do those things see our problem is not the power that's at work inside of us is our faith that this can really happen i believe the reason why we don't see anybody or people being raised from the dead all that often anymore you hear rare cases of it is because none of us really believe that we can do that that's our problem it's a matter of faith but the same holy spirit is at work inside of us 
Matter of fact, that's why the Bible says that we will do greater miracles than Jesus and more of them because it's not us that's doing them, but it's His power inside of us. Keep that in mind when we begin to read these stories as we, as we look at our life and we think we're not good enough or worthy enough. It has nothing to do with you but the power that's at work inside of you. Amen? I think as soon as we can do that, we're going to be a people that sees signs and wonders that would make the Old Testament prophets just stand with their jaws dropped in amazement. And then in James 5, 19 through 20 is where we're going to finish up. It says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know, it's funny, I read scriptures like this and I'm like, man, this kind of a little bit of a smack in the faith to the, the once saved, always saved mentality. James says that if somebody wanders away, there's a possibility of his soul going to death. If you wander away from the faith. And that's why it's so important that we continue to share the gospel with people, that even those who walk away. You know, just because they turn their back is, is not a reason for us to shun them or push them away. It's not a reason for us to, you know, if that's what you want, go ahead. We need to restore our brothers and sisters. It says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Even the very sins that happened while he wandered away, Jesus covered it. If we can bring people back, then their life will be restored. But the fact that we can save their soul from death means that you can walk away. That's why the Bible says that we have to remain in the faith. We have to continue pressing on. And the great news, though, is even if we do make a mistake, even if, if somebody makes that kind of a poor decision, God will always be there to take them back. God is always there with open arms. There's nobody that can do something so bad that God wouldn't receive them back. And we need to make sure that we're not shunning people that have walked away, that have failed, that have made mistakes. We need to encourage them and lift them back up because it's, it's our call, it's our duty to try to bring them back into the faith because God still loves them. And when we do that, we're doing a great service to them because they'll once again have the same hope that we have. And every sin that they've committed, every wrong that they've done, Jesus has covered. Amen? Amen. We'll go ahead and finish up here. This is the, at the end of this book, you know, like I said, this seems like James was all over the place in this book, talking about different things. But as we end it, I recognize this is such a, a great book of instruction for Christian living, for the way that we should live our lives as, as successful Christians. So as we finish up this series, let's resolve to be people who are going to live our lives like this. Let's resolve to be doers of the Word and not just hearers. Let's make sure that we're not so focused on being friends with this world that we become enemies with God. Let's make sure we take control of what we say because that, that little tongue in your mouth can steer and guide your entire life. And let's be a people who love our brothers and treat them well and let's be a people who pray with faith. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and stand our feet.